The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Colossians entitled, Jesus Over Everything. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Well, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to jump right in this morning. We've got a lot of work to do. There's a lot going on in this text. Uh, So let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you for the way that you've opened up for us, a way that we can be made right with you. We ask that you would watch over us, that you would protect us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would open up your word for us and speak to us. Um. Father, I need your help this morning, and I'm a weak man, and I have failures and flaws and insecurities in myself, and so I need your strength this morning. I need you to think through my mind. I need you to speak through my vocal cords. We all need you to help us hear and help us believe the truth. We ask that you do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd open up your Bible with me to the book of Colossians. The last few weeks, we've been studying the first few verses to this awesome letter to the Colossians from the Apostle Paul. And really what we've been studying, if you've been with us, we've been studying what Christians believe. We've been studying the gospel. Now, first and foremost, we need to know this. What makes Christians unique in the world is not how they behave. Rather, it's what they believe. Christians believe. Now, here's the crazy stuff that Christians believe. Well, It's crazy, but it's true. Let me just qualify that. Jesus of Nazareth was actually and literally the Son of God. He was a real historical person, lived a real life, died a real death, was resurrected into an immortal body to never die again. Then he went to heaven to stand at the right hand of God the Father, running the universe until the day he will return to set up his eternal kingdom and make all things new, recreating heaven and earth into one glorious dwelling place for God and man. That's what we believe in a nutshell, in a very long sentence. Now, if you are not a Christian here this morning, you might have a lot of issues with what I just said. That's okay. I understand your objections. It's quite an audacious claim. However, these claims are backed up by all kinds of evidence. And I don't have time to go into all that evidence this morning, but I will issue you an invitation If you have questions regarding the reliability of the Bible or the possibility of miracles or the claims of Jesus or anything that I say today, I would love to dialogue with you. You could send me an email. I'll do my best to respond to it or meet with you for coffee. Um, But this morning, we aren't going to focus so much on what Christians believe as much as how Christians should behave in light of what they believe. So here's our starting point this morning. Jesus is who he says he is. He is exactly who the scriptures reveal him to be. 
He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is our King. And so today we are asking the question, how do Christians live in light of that reality? How do Christians live in a way that is pleasing to Jesus, our King? Now, I want us to think about that this morning. We were all born into a kingdom, and it's not the kingdom of the United States. We were born into a kingdom, a kingdom actually ruled by our evil desires, our flesh, the devil. And it was, as Paul says in verse 13 and 14, a domain of darkness. It's a kingdom of sin that we're born into and we are all its slaves. But Jesus, when he became a man and lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we, should, we deserve, he has defeated sin, death, and, de and the devil and delivered us into a new kingdom. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week. The kingdom of the beloved son. So here's the analogy. Here's the illustration that we all need to understand. We were all prisoners of war. We were born into a concentration camp of sin, really awaiting our death. But Jesus left heaven and broke through the walls that kept us in our concentration camp. He stormed into our camp. He killed our enemy. And then he promises now to deliver us safely home to be with him forever. That's the gospel. But here's what we're asking this morning. If that's true, how then should we live? Now, the Apostle Paul here in our text uses two phrases to answer that question for us this morning. He says Christians are to, quote, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And secondly, we are to live lives that are, quote, fully pleasing to him. So here we see the ideas of being worthy of Jesus and pleasing Jesus. Both of these expectations are rather high ideals. Live a life worthy of Jesus. Live a life pleasing to Jesus. Now, here's how this fits together. Here's the reality. Jesus has done so much for us. As we understand that and as we come to experience his love in our hearts and begin to desire to please him, we begin to desire to please him with our lives. If all of me knows that God loves me and what Jesus has done for me, then none of me would want to disobey him. But what does that look like in real life? Okay, Justin, how does that look like look with my wife? How does that look like with my husband? How does that, what does that look like with my kids or my high pressure job or my own sinful disposition, my personality? How do I live a life that's pleasing Jesus with a personality like mine? Listen, I've been asking that for a long time, <laughs> about 20 years actually or more, okay? Right? What does that look like? Well, it's interesting. Paul's gonna tell us what it looks like for every single personality type. For every single Enneagram number, we're going we're gonna to get it right here. Paul's all-encompassing. He's going to give us a blueprint, if you will, on the Christian life. How a Christian responds to the gospel and what their life should look like 
post-salvation. Let's start in verse 9. And so, Paul writing again, from the day we heard, Paul's talking about he's in jail, he's meeting with Epaphras, Timothy's there, and he's hearing about the lives of, of the Christians in Colossae. He's hearing that the gospel got proclaimed there. He's hearing that they're growing in love for one another, that they're, they're doing some good deeds. He's hearing about these things, but he's also hearing about some sin going on. So from the day that we heard, look, Paul says, we have not ceased to pray for you. So Paul, Epaphras, Timothy, hey, we're in jail. This, let's just make this into a prayer meeting. All right, we're gonna pray for the people in Colossae. That's what they're doing. What are they gonna pray about? They're going to pray about the blueprint of the Christian life. Here it comes. Asking, this is what we're praying, that you, Christian, may be filled with the knowledge of his will, that's God's will, the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Okay? Paul says, when you become a Christian, here's the first pillar to the Christian life in the blueprint, okay? Okay? Step one begins with a change in the way that we think. Here he prays for the Christians to be filled with knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. All of this has to do with the mind of the Christian. Now don't get thrown off by all the kind of religious sounding words like God's will and spiritual wisdom. What is spiritual wisdom? Spiritual wisdom must be something different than real wisdom. No, it's actually not. It's wisdom. Paul says, I want you to know God's will in your minds. Now, what is God's will? This gets baptized in all kind of weirdness in the church. Anytime somebody asks you, listen, I'm just really trying to find God's will. What they mean by that most of the time is, who am I supposed to date? Where is my spouse? I'm looking for God's will. Can you tell me who that person is? Right? Like you're just worshiping one day and then all of a sudden the light just glows on this one person. Right? And you're like, there she is. And angels, oh, God's will for my life. Or it's what college I need to go to. Right? I'm just bringing, you bring two mascots before the Lord. All right, is this it's a Spartan? Is it at all? Which one is it? Right? And the Lord's going to show you which one he wants you to go to. Or it's a career. God's will clearly is you to be Whatever right? We're looking for God's will. Or it's a, should I take the job? Should I not? What city should I live in? Right? You could even take it all the way down, you know? Should you post this picture or not? What, what profile picture best describes me? Listen, that, when, when the Bible talks about God's will, that's not what it's talking about. All right? When the Bible talks about God's will, here it is. God's will is very simple. God's will is for the Christian to live a holy life. Every time he talks about God's will, he will go and explain it and put it in you know, really clear terms. Look, let's look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Let's put that up on the screen, please. The Apostle Paul, writing to Christians in Rome, he says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to look... Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. First off, he's talking about something physical, our real life, our real everyday life. He wants us to present that to God. Look, holy and acceptable to God. So it's about living a holy life, 
Look, which is your spiritual worship? There's that word spiritual again. I thought what it meant to be spiritual was to pray a lot, was to meditate, was to go to church. Paul here is saying your spiritual life is your only life. It's your real life, your everyday life, your changing diaper life, your going to work life, your waking up early and staying up late and hanging out with friends. I want you to live your everyday ordinary life holy to me. This is your spiritual worship. Now keep reading. <clears throat> do not be conformed to this world. So you can't do it the way the world does, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. <clears throat> God's will is not about who you should marry, what job you should take, what neighborhood, you, what neighborhood you should live in. God's will is about what he has done in Jesus for you. That's what God's will is. And out of that, how now should we live? The answer, holy unto the Lord. That's why right after praying for these believers in Colossae to be filled with the knowledge of his will, all spiritual wisdom and understanding, Paul says, here it is, look at verse 9, or verse 10, I'm sorry, so as, why should you be filled with God's will? So as, or knowledge of his will, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's what a holy life is. A life lived that's worthy of Jesus and fully pleasing to him. That is what God's will is for the Christian. To walk in a manner worthy of Jesus and in a way that is fully pleasing to Jesus. Christians, hopefully this isn't a revelation. We live to bring honor to Jesus. We live to please Jesus, to walk in a manner. When he says to walk in a manner, what does that mean? That simply means our entire way of life. It's not just about going to church and doing spiritual things. Our entire way of life, our path, our pace, our attitude should be done in a way that is pleasing to Jesus. So the question is, what does that look like? Well, in our text this morning, Paul shows four ingredients to a life that is worthy of Jesus and pleasing to Jesus. We're going to look at each one of those. <clears throat> Verse 10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, bearing fruit in every good work. Paul says first that a pleasing life is bearing fruit in every good work. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that in the very beginning, when God created a man and woman, he actually told them their purpose in life. Paul here is riffing off of that original command in Genesis. He says this, a good life is a fruitful life. Now, when you go back and you study God's original command given to Adam and Eve, you learn that it was at least twofold. First, when he said, be fruitful and multiply, it was a command to build a family. And second, it was a command to bless the world. The first was a command to be devoted to one another. 
be committed in a covenant relationship between Adam and Eve, right? God escort, he creates Eve, he brings her to Adam, he walks her down the aisle, he presents her before the man. They are, those two are wedded in holy matrimony before the Lord. They're in a covenant and God says, okay, now I want you to make babies. Go be fruitful and multiply. When a husband and wife come together and they procreate, they are obeying God in that sense. They are being fruitful and multiplying. That's pretty obvious. But scholars tell us something else that God meant in that command as well. And they call it the cultural mandate. So here it is. In building a family, Adam and Eve were also creating a culture. Now, now what does that mean? What just is culture? Culture is the result of human creativity when humans get together and they dwell together in unity. It's the, so what's happened is you put a family, you, you, you make a family, that little family builds a culture. And a culture is the makeup of their shared language, common forms of dress, the way they relate to God, the creation of technology, art, music, agriculture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When a family lives a certain way, they create culture in that family. That family has a culture. So in telling Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, God was saying, I want you to create a culture that blesses the world. Make babies. Build a family. Sew clothes. Write poetry. Create instruments. Sing songs. Develop architecture, build tools to work the ground to better produce food for your expanding family. Study God's creation and learn how things work. Now, scholars tell us this one command is so expansive that it includes the reality, it's basically telling us to go build a rocket that can bring humans to the moon, figure out cancer and cure cancer. Create good businesses that bless the world. All of that is included in this one command. Now, here's the key. All of that culture making was meant to happen with God at the center, in relationship with God. So they were constantly asking, how would God want me to parent? Well, God's a father. How's he parent me? Oh, okay, I'll do it that way. How would God want me to do this, Right? So this is what I want us to see. That means when Adam and Eve started building culture and making clothes and making music and figuring out architecture, all of that work was holy. All of that work was spiritual. They weren't out in the field planting, doing irrigation and planting things and going, I'm just spending too much time in this real world. I need to go pray more. No, no, it was all done unto the Lord. It was all holy and pleasing unto the Lord until when it wasn't, Right? So when they sinned against him and created really bad culture, right? And that's what bad culture, that's what culture goes wrong when it's attempted apart from God or in defiance to him in his ways. Now, you see this. When Adam and Eve sin, culture fractures. Their relationship with one another breaks. Sin enters in the picture. And then Genesis, you see this long, nasty spiraling effect of bad culture being created where Cain kills his brother in the field, right? 
That is the exact opposite of God's good design and good culture making. It's not bringing life and bringing about human flourishing. It's actually destroying humanity. Then later we see men creating new technology at this place called Babel. They invent a new way of making bricks. They can make them much more solid and stable than anything before. And they're able to take their construction ability up a few notches. And they start building a tower. Why? To make their own name great. We haven't moved on from that too often. We build really big buildings and then we maybe might put our name on them occasionally. Might happen sometimes. (laughs) Right? Now, what's going on here? They're not building a tower to make God's name great. They're building a tower to make their name great. So they're, they're saying, look what we've done. And said, look what God gave us. God gave us the soil. God gave us the rain. God gave us the sun. God gave us the ingenuity to put those things together and lay them out. Let those bricks harden and then build something. Create good architecture. Right? That's what happens when when culture making goes wrong. It happens apart from God, away from God's good design. So here's the reality. When Paul is using that phrase here, he includes all of God's original intention. We should live fruitful lives. We should build families with God at the center. We should create culture and do our work in a way that honors God and brings good, good into the world, that brings about human flourishing. But there's also another way Paul uses the term bearing fruit. And it is in a famous passage in Galatians 5, and it's called the fruit of the spirit passage. And there he says that Christians should also bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now here Paul is taking this metaphor of being fruitful, and he's not just talking about procreating, and he's not just talking about doing good in the world. He's talking about character formation the type of people we are becoming. And that's interesting because Christians aren't just good at building big families, though we are, this church is good at that. Nor are we just do-gooders out in the world working really hard and trying to be kind and trying to do things well, trying to build nonprofits and alleviate the poor or alleviate poverty and help the poor. Right? We're not just doing good. Look, look, look. How we do what we do matters. Why we do what we do matters. The type of person we're becoming matters just as much as the work that we're doing. Now that's interesting. Did you realize it's possible to do good things and yet have a terrible reason for doing that thing? Or a horrible attitude while doing it. And that's it. The phrase Paul uses here, bear fruit in good works. 
So there's a way of doing good works that isn't actually bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I could give you millions of examples of this, all right? Here's one, here's one way. Um, when my wife spent a large, major, large section of the last decade pregnant, okay? Uh, we've had four children, and when my wife gets pregnant, she's only like this tall, and so she's, you know, she doesn't have this long body to be able to spread that baby out, so she just moves out, and everything hurts, and everything gets sore, and her feet get hurt, her feet get really sore, and she often would sit down and ask me to rub her feet, okay? Now, because I'm a Christian <laughs> and a good Christian, okay, I would, once or twice, I would do that, okay? But here's what happened. I, I had this time hop. If you don't know what time hop, it brings up your old pictures and stuff from social media posts. And while I was laying down my life and loving my wife like Christ loves the church, in holiness and rubbing her feet, she took a picture of me. Probably to post it to social media to let everyone know how above reproach and holy her husband is. And when I looked at the picture that showed up in my time hop, it looked like a three-year-old who just had a sucker pulled out of their mouth and thrown in the trash. Her foot was in my head and I was pouting, and I was mad, and I was upset, but I was doing the right thing. I really hoped she would go to her fight club and share how self-sacrificial her husband is to rub her feet, right? Now, is rubbing her feet a good thing? Is taking care of your wife a good thing? Absolutely. Did I do that thing? Absolutely, I did. Hope she always remembers it, too. Hopefully, Jesus wrote it in his book, right? But did I have a good attitude while doing said thing? Absolutely not. Was I bearing fruit? Not good fruit. I was selfish. I was frustrated. I was doing it because I felt like I had to. She's, I did do that to her. By, you know, I guess I owe her something here, right? My fault, right? I was not being kind. I was not being gentle. I was not being loving. Right? I was not bearing the fruit of the Spirit. I was still doing a good thing, but my attitude was anything but good. Now, that reality can get traced. We should look at the good works that we do often because sometimes we give money just to feel better about ourselves. Sometimes we help others just because we hope in the future they'll help us. Sometimes we do things just so others will think we're good and we're a good person, and we're that type of person. And when we, do, here's what Paul's telling, when we do that with ungodly motives or an ungodly attitude, we're not bearing good fruit in those good works. They're not actually, those are actually sin piled on top of sin. We're sinning in our good works. That's not good, right? So to put this simply, the Christian is meant to walk in such a way that, look, they're bearing the fruit of the Spirit, working to create good in the world and in their families. 
Some of us believe that God wants us to do as much as humanly possible for our families and for our world. Okay, how can you do that with patience? If God wants you to accomplish the most possible, how can you do, how can you do that with patience? That should cause us to question some of our motivations and some of our reasons for taking on another project or doing a little bit more or filling our day with another obligation. So the first thing, the first pillar of the Christian life or the first ingredient to the Christian life is that we are bearing fruit, the fruit of the Spirit in every area of our life. Secondly, Paul says, look at verse 10, Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing, should underline increasing, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, that's interesting. Paul has already prayed in verse 9 that they would be, quote, filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And now in verse 10, he says that they should be increasing in the knowledge of God. Now that's interesting. Verse nine, I want you to be filled with all the knowledge. Verse 10, I want you to be increasing in the knowledge of God. Now what's going on there? Here Paul is giving us a rare glimpse into kind of both sides of the spiritual equation. He prays to God to fill them with his own knowledge but that filling doesn't take place while they lie uncooperating or unconscious on the operating table, right? You know what, God? I don't know the Bible, so I'm just gonna pray that while I sleep tonight, you just pour it into me. So when I wake up tomorrow, oh, there it was. That's exactly what I needed. Romans 12, one through two, <laughs> right? Like the matrix, it just got downloaded in your brain. I'll just, I know the Bible, right? This is, the, this is the wish of every high school or college student. Lord, help me on this test. The Lord's answer is always the same. I will only bring out of you what you have put in. If you didn't study for the test, don't expect to know the date that whatever, whatever, whatever was created, right? Mm, give it to me. It's not esoteric knowledge that Lord's, oh, I'm just gonna give you that right now. No, comes through study. It comes through learning. It comes through our engagement, our own agency. Changing our thoughts and changing our perceptions of God is going to take our active participation. We are going to have to listen to good gospel preaching. We're going to have to set aside time and open up our Bibles to let the truth of God drive out the falsehoods we hold dear. See, Christians are meant to be lifelong learners. That's one of the things that the word disciple means. A disciple is a learner, somebody who's consistently, constantly growing in their understanding and their knowledge of God. Much of our wrong thinking about Jesus, about God, about church, about the Christian life, can be driven out through growing and understanding the truth of who God is and what he's done. So Christians are meant to be studying God's word, 
listening to sermon, for us, listening to podcasts, reading good books, always increasing in our knowledge of God. So, one, we're bearing fruit in every good work. Two, we're growing in our understanding, increasing our knowledge of God, engaging our mind. Let me just say that. Sometimes Christianity gets the reputation that it's because it's, a, it's about faith, it's about believing something, that somehow we disconnect our mind from our body. And it's just, that's not, that's not what we do. We study a text. We even study history. We, we survey facts. Christianity, when done right, will, will take all of your mind. That's why Jesus said we're to love our God with all of our mind. It's going to take that. So third, look at verse 11. Third ingredient. This is a long one, so bear with me. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, what a glorious and complex phrase. That's the Apostle Paul. We're going to break that down a bit. First of all, let's get the kind of unpleasant words out of the way. Paul says the Christian walk that pleases Jesus is going to take endurance and patience. Endurance, by definition, is not a sprint. That means it's not over quickly. If you're standing on the starting line of a marathon, there's one thing someone can tell you, and that can say this, it's gonna hurt, and it's going to hurt for a while. The pain, it is not going to be over quickly. Now, a sprint is the exact opposite. Here's the deal, man. All you're going to do is give it everything you've got for 10 seconds. And then by the time you cross the finish line, the pain's, well, the pain's going to start, actually, when you cross the finish line, right? And then it all hits you at once and you lay down and you're, and you're hurt, but then it's over, right? It's it. A marathon is the exact opposite. Endurance is, the, it's going to hurt for a long time. And it's probably going to hurt more towards the end. Paul here is saying, this is the Christian life. It's not a sprint. It's an endurance event. It's going to take a while. And you know what? Here's the other thing about the endurance event. Training is going to be necessary. Do you know that it, to, to run a sprint, well, this might be wrong. If you're over 40, it, sprinting does require training or you're going to pull something guaranteed. But for most of humanity, sprinting requires no training. As soon as your child can stand and tip their melon far enough that they need to catch up, they're sprinting everywhere they go most of the time. Right? No training is necessary. But if you take said child and you bring them to the beginning of the Quad Cities Marathon, you say, all right, go at it. They're not going to get very far. To make it to the end of a 26-mile marathon requires training. No one goes from the couch to running a marathon overnight. None of us are born with endurance. Listen, developing endurance requires patience. You want to train for a marathon? 
You don't get up tomorrow and run 20 miles. You run a mile. You run two miles the next day, whatever. You build upon that and you have to create an endurance. This is why we need patience. Paul says, this is an analogy of the Christian walk with God. Eugene Peterson said it this way in one of his books. The Christian life is a long, slow walk in the same direction. Walking with Jesus, walking towards holiness, walking towards God's kingdom, walking towards heaven. Our life is meant to be a long, slow walk in the same direction. Now, this point was really brought home to me a few years ago when I was at the Desiring God Pastors Conference and John Piper was on a panel of pastors and they were being asked different questions. And one of the things they asked John Piper was, Pastor, what causes you to doubt God? Now in our day and age, there can be all kinds of things. There can be scientific questions. There could be philosophical questions. There could be all kinds of you know, new ideas presented by the new, the new the school and the new atheists is what they're called. I'm thinking, okay, let's, let's, let's zero in. But this is what John Piper says. What causes you to doubt God? The painful slowness of my own sanctification. What causes, and John Piper was the hero of mine, what causes him to doubt God? The, re, the reality that he gets to, he's where he's at now, now he's retired, and he's, I think he's 70 years old, or, or a little bit over 70, and he says, oh, I'm not where I used to be, or I'm not where I want to be. So much of my sin is still hanging on to me. I'm so slow to develop patience and kindness in the fruit of the Spirit. So in one sense, it looks like John Piper has ran his marathon and he's at the end of the marathon and he crosses the finish line and they're like, oh, no, no, this is an ultra marathon. We're going 100. We're going 100 miles. And he gets to the end of 26 miles and he's exhausted and he can barely make it. And, he's, and this causes him, and he, oh no, the finish line, I'm only 25% done. And this causes him to doubt God. Well, look at our text this morning. This is why the apostle says this, verse 11. May you be strengthened. It doesn't say, may you suck it up. May you figure it out. May you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and square your shoulders back and be all that you can be. It doesn't say that. It says, be strengthened. Somebody else is doing it to you. Be strengthened. Keep reading. With all power, according to his glorious might. Here's the analogy. What is his glorious might? What kind of power? The same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead. So when the Christian realizes that this is not a sprint, and it's always great when you first become a Christian and you think it's a sprint and you head out as fast as you can, and a week into it, you realize, oh, this is actually harder than I thought. And I don't think I've trained properly for this. And you hit a wall and the fruit of the spirit, you know, there are no fruit of the spirit on the vine after a week, right? And so you lose your patience. You're not kind. You don't have self-control. And what do you do when you get to the end of yourself? Here's the reality. 
You need to be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. When Jesus got to the end of himself, literally he gave his last breath and he died. Guess who was waiting for him after his last breath? The God who brings the dead back to life. And that's exactly what the Christian needs when they get to the end of their own strength and their own power and they get to the end of the marathon and they realize, oh no, it's an ultra marathon. I don't have the strength. That's when we cry out to God and God meets us in our weakness in that spot. Now, if that doesn't sound enjoyable to you, that you hate this whole analogy. Like I'm talking about a Netflix marathon and not a real marathon. It's not the Christian life. But there's, a, there's two little words at the end of that phrase that you need to zero in on. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. <laughs> See, there is joy in the journey for the Christian. See, as we're training in the Christian life, and it's training. It's, a couple weeks ago, I said the Christian life isn't about trying. There's a difference between trying and training, and I don't have time to go into it this morning. When we're training in the Christian life, and we're in this long, slow walk in the same direction, and we're wearing ourselves thin, and we're wearing ourselves out, we realize we don't have what it takes in a lot of ways. If you're a single person in here, you realize how you don't have, when you're trying to resist sexual sin and the promiscuity and all the stuff that's going on in our culture, most of the time you realize pretty quick, I don't have what it takes to get through this. How am I ever going to? You need to be strengthened. If you're a parent, you realize very quickly, this game is rigged. Hold on, I'm supposed to have patience, but the child is wet. I'm not sleeping. How can I have patience when I don't sleep? Yeah, it's rigged. <laughs> See, when we get to the end of ourself, that is meant to cause us to cry out to God and seek him in the midst of this long, slow walk as we're developing patience and developing endurance. And there, when we're weak and we're bankrupt and we're crying out to God, he strengthens us with the same power that raised Jesus up from the dead. And that is what keeps us going, resurrection power. And every time we get to the end of ourselves and we want to give up, God raises us up again and fills us with his power to keep moving forward. And every time that happens, I get another shot of joy. Every time. I thought I would have failed by now. How am I just keep getting back up? How can I keep moving forward? God resurrecting us over and over and over and over. And that fills us with joy. And what does that do? It makes joy and thankfulness the spring from which all of our future obedience flows from. See, I'm not obeying God because I'm ashamed of myself. I'm now obeying God because everything he's done for me. Look, look in the text. Look in the text. 
It says this, the fourth pillar of the Christian life. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. See, Christians are now motivated by joy and thankfulness. Now, to bring this around kind of full circle, what motivates our obedience? What motivates our life that we're to live a life worthy of Jesus and pleasing to Jesus? And what motivates us matters. What is the Christian's motivation meant to be? Now, listen, this is absolute gold. So you need to circle it. Look in the middle of verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father. Look, who has qualified you. You need to circle that. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of life. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this might be the most important aspect of this whole sermon. Christians are not trying to please Jesus in hopes that he will let them get into heaven when they die. No. We want, to live Je- we want to live lives that please Jesus because he has already qualified us. Now, what does that mean? Here's the dictionary.com, dictionary.com definition of to be qualified. To be qualified for something means to be entitled to a particular benefit or privilege by fulfilling a necessary condition. Okay? Here's the idea, guys. You have to qualify for the state tournament in athletics. There's a pre-tournament. You have to win that or whatever, top two, top three, top four. You have to qualify in that tournament to make it into the state tournament. You have to qualify to get a mortgage loan on your house. You have to bring your finances to your loan officer. He has to review your all of your finances, your debts, your income. And he says, okay, you now qualify for this amount of loan. That's what it means to qualify for something. Now, here's something everyone intuitively knows. If there is a God, and if there is an afterlife, everyone has to qualify to get into the good place. (laughs) If it's really good, you clearly can't let in bad people. They would ruin it for everyone, right? You know this, even at like Thanksgiving, you're like, is, is that person coming? Oh, do we have to invite them? They have the same last name as you. Yes, we do. <laughs> now listen, here's the reality. That's true. You have to qualify for the afterlife to find yourself in the good place. The question is, how good do you have to be to make it into the good place? How good is good enough? Now, most of us live like, we might not say we believe this, but we live like the qualifying line is actually right behind my heels. (laughs) And so clearly that person's worse than me. So you know what? They're probably not making it, but at least I'm a... I'm 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 at least an inch or two ahead of that person. So I feel kind of good about myself, actually. In other words, we think we are pretty good and we really hope that we've done enough 
to qualify ourselves for heaven. Now, what the scriptures tell us is, in fact, the qualification line for heaven is actually the perfect life. Heaven is perfect, by the way, so don't bring any imperfection into it. Not just good enough, a person must live perfectly. The qualification line is perfection, and everything beyond that line qualifies you actually for another place, the bad place, the second death. Take all your badness and bring it to the bad place with you. Now listen, I know that's scary, but this is where the beauty of the gospel, the Christian message, shines forth. Jesus was the son of God. He was, he became a man. He was the God man. And when he came from heaven to this earth, he lived the perfect life. That means Jesus qualified himself for heaven. Now, the Father, the Son, the Spirit lived together in eternity before they created anything, and they're perfectly happy by themselves. So Jesus, thankfully, didn't just come to earth to live a perfect life, to go back to be with heaven, so they could all enjoy that perfection together by themselves again. Heaven's back to normal. It's us three. Let's, let's roll this thing. Thankfully, what Jesus did when he came to earth was he came as our representative, our federal head. He acted for all mankind. And so what Jesus says is, I qualified myself for eternal life, but I've also qualified you. Anyone who puts their faith in me is now qualified for eternal life with God the Father. Now listen to this. Because of the work of Jesus done on our behalf, we didn't do any of it. Because 100% solely Jesus' work, we are now pre-qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Pre-qualified. You were qualified before you were born. When Christ died on the cross, you were qualified. That means you're not walking through this through this life, looking for some imaginary line to cross over. Am I good enough? Did I do enough? It has nothing to do with it. You are qualified solely by the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's good news. That's the gospel. Pre-qualified. We're not earning our way into heaven. We don't have to question it. Are you going to heaven? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Okay, then yeah. I am. He's in heaven and I'm in Christ and I'm in him. He qualified us this morning. Now, the good news that that is, oh, I can't go into it. I'm already over. Duh. There's a lot of good news that's tied to that. But the main piece is we're not working for our salvation. We're not trying to please Jesus. We're working really hard to please Jesus. No, 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 no. Jesus is pleased. The Father is pleased. And now we can live out of that and respond out of that in joy as we're walking this difficult, 
endurance race that we're in. Now, I want to show one. It's, it's an old hymn written by John Newton. And in, in it, it, it kind of marries these two ideas that we're talking about today. We're talking about bearing fruit and being patient and, and, and having endurance. We're talking about all this kind of, it sounds like it could be like hard work type of stuff. But then we're also talking, about, but we're pre-qualified. How, how do those two things work together? Let me close with this hymn. Shall men pretend to pleasure who never knew the Lord? So can you really find happiness outside of Jesus? The answer is no. Can all the worldlings treasure? Can you buy your way to peace of mind, to true peace of mind afford? No, you can't. They shall obtain this jewel in what their hearts desire when they, by adding fuel, can quench the flame of fire. Remember, all of our good works done with bad motives or bad attitudes, they're just compounding sin. They're literally just adding fuel to the fire. You can't stop a fire by adding fuel to it. Till you can bid the ocean when furious tempests roar. Forget its wanted motion and rage and swell no more. So basically our, in, our desires, our sinful desires inside of us are like a raging ocean. Who can stop its raging? In vain your expectation to find content in sin or freedom from vexation while passions rage within. Come, here's the answer. Turn your thoughts to Jesus. If you would good possess, if you want to do good works, bear good fruit, tis he alone that frees us from guilt and from distress. When he by faith is present, the sinner's troubles cease his ways are truly pleasant, and all his paths are peace. Our time in sin we wasted and fed upon the wind until his love we tasted. No comfort could we find. But now we stand to witness his power and grace to you. May you perceive its fitness and call upon him too. Our, I love this line right here. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. What that means is when I was not a Christian, I looked at the Christian life as duty, being good, and I looked at my way of pleasure as doing what was right in my eyes, and those two things were very different. But once I become a Christian, I realize that God's glory and my joy are the same thing, that I find my satisfaction in Christ, the fact that I've been qualified already to share in the saints of life. Our joy to, pour, our to part no more, it is our highest pleasure, no less than duty's call, to love him beyond all measure and serve him with our all. Let me pray. Father, what a mystery to live a life that pleases you and brings honor to your name. We must be pre-qualified. We can never earn it. Our works are full of sin full of evil motivation, full of evil intentions, full of evil attitudes. And so we just pile sin on top of sin. We can never find, we can never be good enough.
But oh, the joy the gospel brings that Jesus lived the life that I can't live and he died the death that I deserve and he rose to the right hand of the Father and he offers forgiveness and he offers grace and he qualifies those who put their faith in him. Father, may that bring joy to our dead hearts. May that resurrect them. May that bring encouragement to those who are so tired and they're so, out, so worn out from this long walk with Jesus. Give us grace upon grace, Father, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.